Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we'll look back at the first year of the administration of President Joe Biden, what he's achieved, what still remains undone, and how his critics on both the right and the left might assess his first year of performance. And we'll have an exciting conversation about the cosmos and the new way that NASA scientists have to explore them, the James Webb Space Telescope. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So go back to a year from right now, 2021 January, and there was a lot of anticipation for the presidency of Joe Biden. For those who were tired of the antics the unprofessional and authoritarian impulses of the Trump presidency, Biden offered a reprieve and the promise of a more stable democracy. For those who wanted more societal equality and greater degrees of public spending across many different spaces, Biden also offered hope. And for independence, maybe he simply represented a needed change of pace. But regardless of your political preferences, it's undeniable that the Biden administration has gotten some things done and has stalled a bit on some others. It passed the American Rescue Plan, a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, put 100 million shots in 50 million arms in the first 100 days, temporarily expanded the child tax credit, and re-entered the U.S. in the Paris Climate Agreement. Additionally, indicators like job growth and the stock market and wages have all gone up in the last 12 months. But here's the list of things that the administration has yet to do. Voting rights renewal, immigration reform, a $15 federal minimum wage, labor reform laws, and a path to freedom from personal debt and fossil fuels. Those are all things that have stalled for one reason or another, mostly in the halls of Congress. What's more, inflation continues to increase, removing some of those wage gains. The president's polling numbers are relatively low for someone who is entering the beginning of a midterm election year, and the president has not really been able to work with Republicans, let alone some Democrats, as he said he would be able to. So where does that leave us with about 11 months to go before the midterm elections? And what should we hope for next? What should we be looking forward to during this 11 months? Will the president be able to break some of these log jams and get more done than he already has? That is where we begin the conversation today with the prospect for the Biden presidency one year in. We want to hear from you about what you think the president has gotten done in his first 12 months, what he hasn't gotten done, what you expected him to achieve in that first year, but that perhaps you're a little disappointed that he wasn't able to get done. Also, give us a call if you think the president is doing just fine and that given the political climate in Washington, the difficulty in the tensions between left and right, we couldn't have expected much more than what we've gotten. We also want to hear from you if you think this is a disastrous presidency and has been a 12-month stretch of nothing but disappointment. Call and tell us what you would have liked to see instead. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313 577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter 
and put comments there, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Joining us to help flesh out what's happened in the first 12 months of the Biden presidency are two people who know an awful lot about these subjects. Wendy Schiller is a professor and chair of political science and a professor of international and public affairs at Brown University. She's a contributor to MSNBC, NPR, CNN.com, and Bloomberg News. Wendy Schiller, welcome to Detroit Today. My pleasure to be here. Also with us is E.J. Dion. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post. He's also a university professor in the Foundations of Democracy and Culture at Georgetown University. E.J., welcome back to Detroit. It's great to be with you again, and it's great to be with Wendy. I am a huge fan of Wendy's and haven't talked to her in a while, so it'll be good to talk with her through you. Thank you. Well, look at that. (laughs) Detroit Today bringing people together. Exactly. (laughs) We go go way back. We go way back. We we do indeed. Okay, so I'm going to start with you, Professor Schiller. You have been a bit more optimistic on the Biden presidency than a lot of analysts have been. Uh, Just spend some time giving us your impression of this first year in office for him. Well, I've been optimistic because I think that Biden has accomplished uh, a a pretty good amount of things, both uh, through executive power and also through legislative um, victories, even though they came bunched together uh, late in the year. Uh, I think where I think he's not been successful is messaging. Uh, And that's, I think, um, sort of inexcusable in a lot of ways, given the level of experience that not only he has, but his staff has as well. But you go back to his accomplishments, he came in facing an enormous public health crisis and certainly an economic crisis. Um, And uh, he, uh, I think, helped facilitate a lot of the state efforts on vaccination. He was very clear about the messaging on vaccination. uh, And he was very steadfast about it. Didn't panic, um, didn't reverse course, uh, really just stuck with the plan of getting as many Americans vaccinated as possible. And we've seen how important that's been uh, with the new resurgence um, of Omicron and different variants. Uh, of COVID that we have a lot of difficulty now, but we would be in much, much worse shape without it. And it was no small task. Um, he also uh, managed to reauthorize transportation funding. As many of you may know, the, the government can keep spending money under certain circumstances, but eventually you need Congress to pass a new reauthorization, a new legal permission to spend the money. And that was running out, literally. Uh, and it was something that Trump had wanted to do with the Republican Congress, but couldn't do it. And Biden got it done, and it's got a lot of really sensible infrastructure that will not only address bad roads and bridges, but also give us you know, better uh, access to internet in a lot of the areas, especially rural America, uh, and certainly also thinking about charging stations for electric cars, things about climate change. These are things that are a real investment, and it's a real victory to get that bill done, um, which really frees us up to plan for the future. Uh, that's just a, among a few other things, a child, cre- uh, child credit tax extension. Clearly, that's something that's on the table again. But these are things that help people's daily lives. And I think that's been really, really crucial. And uh, I, I shudder to think about where we would be if he hadn't been successful in doing those things. So, EJ, that's a long list of accomplishments. And, um, you know, there are things that that as... Wendy points out, they really matter to people's everyday lives. So why is the president's popularity at such a low point? And and at some points, it has been lower than almost every other president at this point uh, in, in his presidency. I mean, it's almost as if uh, there are a lot of people who think he's he's screwing up, but but I guess the question always is, well, what is he screwing up that uh, that they're reacting to? Um, well, first of all, on the approval rating, we're at a moment in our history where we are so polarized that even a president who raised everyone's income $30,000 a year with no inflation dropped unemployment to 1% and everything was peaceful in the world, probably he or she couldn't get their approval rating higher than about 60% because we are so partisan right now. So I think that's part of it. But I think the lists that you and Wendy offered 
are really good as a way of uh, understanding this. Let's go back and look at the good news. And Wendy mentioned some of this, you know, big time economic recovery and job growth, cuts in child poverty, the big infrastructure bill, which is actually a serious investment in the future, uh, substantial gains in health coverage, a massive vaccination, and I'll get to why it isn't quite as high as we want. And then to go to your intro, uh, authoritarian impulses at the top are gone. That's not a trivial thing. Uh, and we're something back to something like normal leadership, I'd even say humane leadership. Um, that's all on the plus side. The bad news is that this pandemic, this virus won't go away. Um, there is inflation. Build Back Better is stalled. And voting rights uh, is in limbo right now. Uh, and I think the argument over Build Back Better, the fact that Democrats were beating the heck out of each other uh, over what to do or not to do, particularly because Senators Manchin and Sinema have been holding out, have really made the Democrats look weak, and it has not been good uh, for uh, Biden. I think the president oversold his capacity, or I think any Democrat's capacity, uh, to work in a bipartisan way with Republicans. Um, and I think the amount of resistance to steps that need to be taken on vaccination and masking, but especially vaccination, from Republican governors, and now it would appear the Supreme Court itself soon, um, is a real problem for him. But I very much agree with Wendy that um, the the fact that the president really put such a high premium on bipartisanship at a time of deep polarization um, was a mistake in a lot of ways. And I think he began to try to correct that with that speech on Thursday. I'm curious what Wendy thinks, but uh, last Thursday, I think that was by far the best speech of his presidency. Hmm. He looked strong. He looked like he believed what he was saying passionately. Um, he finally called out Trump without mentioning him by name, the words former president or defeated former president. Uh, former president was used 16 times. Um, and he really called out the Republicans and said, which side are you on? I saw that as a pivot from a kind of messaging, to use Wendy's term, uh, that really hadn't served him well. Uh, to, um, you know, to a much better approach going into these elections. But the fact is voters will judge politicians by what is happening on the problems they face. And until we get the virus under control again, I think there'll be this very strong sense of disappointment out there. People were hoping their kids could go to school full time again, and it looks like that's going to be a problem. Uh, people had thought they could return to work, those who wanted to. We're going to have a big debate over how much we want to work in a hybrid way. Um, that didn't happen. So I think the fundamentals he's got to grapple with, and that would begin be the beginning of a recovery if it, we can get a handle on this. Hmm. Now, uh, Professor Schiller, I want to give you a chance to react to what uh, EJ was just, was just saying, and then I want to talk about... Uh, the the expectations that are on this presidency, not just from the right uh, in in terms of uh, opposition, but from the left and 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 the criticism that comes from the left. But but react to what uh, what EJ was saying first. Um, well, Stephen, I, I think EJ's pointing uh, to uh, almost a unique position for Biden. Uh, because we have come to expect so much from him because he's been around so long. Uh, and certainly, uh, E.J. absolutely right. He ran, uh, and you said the same thing, he ran on a platform saying, I can get things done, I can work with people, I can heal some of our divisions. Um, and the divisions, you know, it's not too bold to say, I think are too big for any one president to attempt to heal. Uh, Biden's got some of the talent for it. Uh, but uh, I think it's a pretty uh, major external obstacle uh, from messaging on vaccines to masks to public safety to, you know, whether the election was fair or not. It's almost too big for Biden to handle. Um, yet he's, he's the Democrats have been urging him, I think, to be more forceful about trying to handle it and, and take it uh, head on. And I think you're absolutely right. Coming out in the, in the beginning of a midterm election year and saying, listen, you know, this guy lost. I beat him. Uh, and I beat him fair and square. And elections are fair and square in this country. And if you're going to try to suppress the vote, we're going to come after you. And I think that's a very good political stance 
I don't know that it's going to help pass the Voting uh, Rights Act or any assembly of voting protection at the federal level in the Congress, but it's certainly a very good campaign banner for the Democratic Party. So the question is, does Biden pivot and move into that space where he is more party leader uh, this year with his rhetoric and his messaging than he is trying to be a legislative leader? Hmm. And he's going to have to choose uh, that position pretty quickly uh, before we get into the real nitty gritty of primaries and midterm 2022. Yeah. So I, I want to read a Twitter comment that we've gotten from a listener and get both of you to react to it. And it gets to this this subject that I'm trying to raise here, which is that this is a president who doesn't just have opposition across the aisle. He's got opposition in his own ranks. Uh, DP side on Twitter says, if today were 1975, Biden would be considered a moderate Republican. He refuses to cancel student debt, favors his Build Back Better plan over voting rights for the black people who got him elected. Uh, they said, this is what happens when the people's choice, Bernie, is kneecapped by the DNC. Now, I, we can quibble about what happened to uh, Bernie Sanders in his, in his candidacy uh, during the Democratic primaries in, in uh, 2019 and 2020. Um, but th th this point about how moderate Biden's agenda seems to be to, um, to, to the far left uh, elements of the Democratic Party, which are the, you know, I, I think everybody would agree that it was this huge surge in voter turnout in 2020, largely by far left uh, Democrats, people in cities like Detroit, uh, who, who put him over the top, um, that the disappointment that those people feel, I think, is very real. And and it's the thing that I think threatens uh, not just the the the, the midterm elections and, and the hopes that Democrats have to hold on to control of Congress. But uh, if Kamala Harris, the vice president, were to run in two years, uh, the president has said he doesn't plan to seek a second term. Um, it could hurt her as well. I, I, I want to get you both to react, though, to what this this listener is saying about expectations and their disappointments from the left. Uh, Wendy, I'll start with you. Well, I, I think I think there, I, I study institutions, right? This is what this is what I've made my career on, particularly the Senate, but also the House. And if you look at the um, the nature of Congress and the way it's built, it was built a long time ago, uh, a structure I think that is well outdated for the kinds of problems and issues we need to handle in America today. We have a federal system that causes all sorts of inequality across state borders uh, because one state can choose to be more generous with benefits, for example, or more stricter with um, with laws against violence against women, for example. Uh, and another state says, no, we're not going to go that way because you've got automatic inequality. And I think these are really difficult and they are coming to a head in the 21st century like nothing we've ever seen. Uh, but I also think that there's a big, big disconnect between what Biden is doing and what that administration is trying to do uh, and what people feel. And uh, I do agree that the pandemic gets gets uh, in the way of that messaging. But I think that we've either come to expect a great deal from the federal government, which given our federal structure is actually hard to accomplish uh, because state laws and state governments can get in the way, literally, legally. Um, and then, of course, the emphasis the Democrats placed on doing everything all at once. They overpromised, as, as you've said, um, and they appear to have underdelivered. But on the other hand, they got unemployment subsidy extension. Again, the child care tax credit is really important. Uh, I think this is the defining moment, as I said, in terms of the intersection of politics and legislating. Does Biden say, I'm not going to give up on the things that are really important, particularly to the left wing of the Democratic Party? I'm not giving up. Even if I have to break them up and pass them one by one, I'm not going to take my foot off the gas. I'm going to put the pressure on my own party uh, and the Republicans to say no to things that are really sensible, like the, the tax credit, like uh, funding universal pre-K, for example, for uh, kids. Um, so that's what voters are looking for in the Democratic Party, whether Biden can sustain that kind of energy, not only himself, but also with the Democrats uh, in the House and the Senate, that remains to be seen. But that's one way he could address some of this disillusionment is by sticking with things publicly and staying on message about the very things they care about the most. Hmm. Uh, before I uh, let you respond, EJ, I should uh, correct 
something I I said uh, before Wendy started talking, which was that uh, the president doesn't plan to seek re-election. There is a story from the Washington Post in November uh, that he and his aides are telling allies that he is running in 2024. Uh, he did say during uh, the first um, campaign that uh, he didn't think he would run uh, for a second time. And I guess we'll, we'll, we'll wait to see what he decides. But, but react to this idea that he's too moderate to appease the voters, the Democratic voters, the strong surge of Democratic voters who came out in 2020 to put him into office. Well, you know, when you were reading that tweet, uh, the famous quote from Will Rogers came to mind. I don't <laughs> belong to an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. Uh, and when you think of a party that runs from Joe Manchin to Bernie Sanders, uh, you've got a very complicated party uh, to deal with. Uh, number two, Bernie Sanders himself has actually worked quite closely with Joe Biden, and a lot of his original program that he put forward at the beginning of the year um, had the blessing of <coughs> Bernie Sanders, and I'm sorry, <coughs> had a lot of elements of the program <coughs> that Bernie Sanders wanted. <laughs> Hold on just a moment. Sure. <coughs> the failure of the bill in uh, Congress has gotten to my throat here. I'm sorry there. Um, but, you know, so that Bernie himself is not of the view that Biden is a sellout. But I think there's a reality here. It's not an alibi. It's a reality. The Democrats don't have 60 seats in the Senate. They don't have 52 or 53. Uh, they've got 50 seats. That means every Democratic uh, senator is a little bit of a president. And uh, Joe Manchin certainly seems to think that. So does Senator Sinema. Uh, and so a pro program that could have gotten through, I think, with the votes of all the other senators and that has actually gotten passed through the House um, just can't get through as long as those senators throw up a blockade. But what the caller is on, what the tweeter is on to that I think is very important and Democrats seem to think a lot more about is that right now uh, they, the Democrats are suffering from a big enthusiasm gap. I wrote recently about the polling that shows that the number of people who strongly disapprove of Biden, which would be Republicans, is way higher than the number who strongly approve uh, of Biden. And among young people who were particularly important to Biden's victory, um, his strong approval numbers are quite low. They don't like the Republicans. But the issue is not will they vote Republican, it's will they uh, turn out. The one area where I still have some hope uh, for Biden's program uh, is voting rights. Uh, Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia, people will remember he got stuck on the highway uh, for 27 hours driving on I-95 near Washington, right. uh, trying to drive here in the blizzard. Um, and he has been working very closely with Manchin to try to get Manchin to agree to changes in the filibuster. Um, and uh, somebody asked him about this, and he referred to it as slow progress toward a goal like my commute. Um, and I think we may still see, and Biden's and Vice President Harris's speeches tomorrow in Atlanta will be very important, um, I think we still could see a change in the filibuster that lets the two voting bills through. I think, personally, that is the most important issue before us right now, which is to protect democracy itself. And we'll know fairly soon whether there's any chance for those bills or not. Hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Wendy Schiller and E.J. Dion about the first year of the Biden administration. We will also get to more of your comments. Uh, Brad in Rochester Hills, Gene in Detroit, Dennis in Dearborn, you are first up on the phones. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is always the number here. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. 
You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, as always. Thanks for tuning in. Our guests right now are Wendy Schiller, who is a professor and chair of political science and a professor of international and public affairs at Brown University. She's also a contributor to MSNBC, to NPR, CNN.com, and Bloomberg News. Also with us is E.J. Dion. He is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post. We're talking about the first year of Joe Biden's presidency, the things that he promised, the things he has delivered, and the many things that are driving the criticism of his presidency, the things that he has not been able to achieve. We want to hear from you while we have this conversation as well. What do you make of uh, the president's first 12 months in office? What do you make of what's to come this year as we look forward to November's midterm elections? Just a few headlines uh, to, to, to kind of give us some context for this conversation today. Uh, in USA Today, there's a story yesterday that says Biden and Democrats head into 2022 midterms with feistier message and slightly better polls. Is it enough? Reuters says first months of 2022, crucial for Biden agenda as November midterms loom. Uh, and uh, 538, uh, the, the really great uh, poll uh, aggregator, I guess, uh, really uh, the best analysis of all of the polls says uh, why the president's party almost always has a bad midterm. Uh, not a great amount of good news for uh, Joe Biden as he goes into this midterm year. The question is, uh, what should he be doing to to do better in November? What should he do to make sure that Democrats can hold on to control of the House and their very, very narrow control of the U.S. Senate. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Gene in Detroit. Gene, welcome to the show. Yes, good morning, Stephen. Happy hey, New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. The, the, the Democrats, the Biden administration has to focus like a laser on voting rights and the Build Back Better legislation. And somehow they've got to activate Democrats in every state to do the same thing and, it, and to extend democ democ democracy to the fullest extent possible to all the minority communities, especially uh, places like Detroit. Yeah. So, Gene, I, I know that um, you're somebody who was pretty excited about Joe Biden's election uh, in, in November of 2020 and excited about things like voting rights and the possibility for them. I, I wonder if you can talk about whether you have disappointment now because we haven't achieved those things quite yet. Were, were you expecting that in the first 12 months of this presidency you would get more? Uh, particularly around the voting rights and the Build Back Better agenda and for putting uh, the pedal to the metal on uh, COVID-19 testing. Uh, those are the, where they've been really deficient at and, frankly, just moving too slow. Mm. Uh, still excited about uh, the prospects, but uh, they've got to move quickly while they still have control of the Senate and the House, and they need to get back behind Schumer and what he's trying to do uh, by MLK Day. Yeah. Uh, Gene, really appreciate the call uh, and, and the insight. Uh, E.J. Dion, I'll start with you this time. Uh, this, this idea that Democrats maybe should have moved really quickly to get a bunch of things done early, kind of echoing the way that Republicans have behaved when they have faced that situation, uh, have had, you know, control of the White House and both houses of Congress. Uh, they move big stuff uh, and, and then deal with the consequences later. There are a lot of Democrats like Gene, who I hear from, who feel like they didn't quite seize the moment uh, in the Biden administration that way. What, what do you make of that assessment? Well, I want to vote for Gene because I basically agree with every word he said. <laughs> and I think that the uh, – first of all, I agree with him that the priority now 
legislatively has to be first, second, third, and fourth, the Voting Rights and the Freedom to Vote Act. They've got to get that through, and I'm, I'm worried it's going to be hard, but I still don't think it's impossible. Secondly, they do have to get whatever deal they can out of Build Back Better. And I have been worried from the beginning that this slow legislative process, grinding and grinding and grinding, would damage Build Back Better in the same way that slow legislative process uh, severely damaged Obamacare. The Democrats eventually passed Obamacare, but the debate over it, the fact that it took Democrats forever to get it through, really damaged its standing. And it took years for people to realize, hey, wait a minute, we are actually for this. When it came time to repeal it, the Republicans couldn't muster the votes because it was broadly popular. Uh, and so I think it's a shame that they didn't figure out how to get a deal on Build Back Better much earlier. And if Manchin was going to say, I won't do more than X, to nail Manchin down earlier and say, and cinema as well, and say, okay, here's X, let's pass it. Uh, so I, I, I think that's all correct. Uh, the problem is, and this doesn't sort of wash with voters who don't, for good reason, don't give a damn about how complicated Washington is or complicated, how complicated the Democratic Party is. Uh, 50 votes makes everything hard, plus a you know, three or four vote majority in the House. So they have a really tough time passing an expansive program with tiny majorities. Nonetheless, they should have done more by now. Uh, and I think they'd be in better shape if they had. Hmm. Uh, Wendy Scheller, what do you make of that criticism that Democrats didn't act quickly enough? Well, um, well, uh, with all, uh, uh, with all due respect to EJ, um, and of course, I think Gene is is focusing on something extraordinarily important from an electoral perspective for the Democrats. Uh, just a few things. One, the Republicans actually did not do very much when Trump came in with a, a Republican Congress, Republican House, and Republican Senate uh, from 2017 2018. They only passed the Trump tax cuts, which ballooned the deficit and only really benefited the wealthy and the upper middle class. But other than that, they got nothing else done legislatively. They couldn't repeal Obamacare. They tried, they had more than 50 votes in the last six or eight years. Uh, to repeal Obamacare. And when they got a Republican president, obviously, thanks to John, the late John McCain, um, in terms of his negative vote, they couldn't do it. And they couldn't do uh, immigration. They couldn't do anything they wanted to do except pass a tax cut for the rich. And they they were like, OK, that's fine. You know, Republicans are status quo, if not roll back the federal government. So if they don't succeed legislatively, they don't care. Uh, they think it's a good day if they reduce win, right? the size of government. So um, they don't succeed. So it's not really a fair comparison to say that they do. And the second thing is the Voting Rights Act is so crucially important. And it was, I think, uh, EJ and I probably would agree, gutted by John Roberts' decision in Shelby Beholder. Um, but states constitutionally have a lot of control over how we vote, uh, when we vote, how we vote, it gets on the ballot. Um, and Democrats, I think, are not, do not pay enough attention to state elections. Uh, and making sure that you elect state legislators that will be uh, protectors of voting rights, with the exception of Stacey Abrams in Georgia, who I think is sort of a, a miracle worker on the fact that she is an on-the-ground person who motivates people to register to vote and make sure that they can. And that, that to me, is such the Achilles heel. And no matter what Biden passes or tries to pass or doesn't pass, if the Democrats continue to ignore um, state politics and state legislatures, the way that they have in the last decade, we're going to continue to have these assaults on restriction and restrictions on voting rights. And Michigan is a really interesting example. Yeah. You know, you've got a really, you know, really a big race, tough race coming up for the governor. Um, really interesting legislature, interesting state politically that voted fairly significantly for Joe Biden in 2020. Um, so that's just right in the backyard where you live. Right. You're still facing some attempts to restrict voting and change voting Absolutely, practices in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing I think Biden's got to help Democrats at the state level do if uh, if they're going to make any progress on voting rights. So looking to the federal government historically has been really important, crucial, actually, uh, to making sure that we have fair voting. But if you don't do it without looking at the states, then I think you're you know, you're you're going to fail. 
Yeah. Stephen, yeah. can I just jump Go in? Ahead. Because sure. I, I agree with a lot of what Wendy said, and, and I think I have a minor, or well, it, it may or may not be a minor disagreement. She's absolutely right. The Republicans did not accomplish a lot. They got tax cuts, and they confirmed a lot of judges, the latter being very important, but sure. legislatively, uh, all they got was the big tax cut for the rich. Secondly, we do have to take into account the fact that in earlier moments of our history, there would be some Republican votes for some of this program. Yes, Biden did get Republican votes for the physical infrastructure bill. But a lot of the stuff in Build Back Better is very popular stuff like child care and community colleges uh, and you know the child credit, which has gotten support across uh, party and ideological lines. They're just saying no uh, to all of that. Um, and yes, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act twice now by the Supreme Court is a catastrophe. Uh, the, and, and Democrats do need to pay more attention to legislative elections, which belatedly they are now. But the one point I want to make is we have had federal action before to force states to become small d democratic, to live up to the fact that we are a democratic republic, that we can't let states exclude people from voting. We let that happen a long time during Jim Crow. Uh, then we passed the Voting Rights Act. We're at one of those moments now, again, where only the federal government uh, can push states back to one person, one vote, with everyone having an equal chance and an equal right to cast a ballot. And that's why federal action on voting rights is so important, including the Freedom to Vote Act. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to take another call, uh, and I want to go to someone who wants to talk a little about international uh, news and, and politics as they relate to the Biden administration. Brad in Rochester Hills. Brad, go ahead. Hey, Stephen. Good to hear from you today. Uh, the way this uh, country is going, I think uh, our uh, Biden administration is uh, really in shambles. It's uh, really in, in taking its toll on uh, our, and my fellow Americans, uh, especially those like myself who uh, lean conservative towards political issues and vote in the Republican. It's uh, draining uh, out uh, our uh, value system, not only our economies, even uh, politically and Spiritually, but uh, when it comes to defending our freedoms in this uh, country that uh, we so often take for granted, I think Biden uh, made a big mistake by uh, prematurely withdrawing those troops from Afghanistan at the end of August last year, and and it, it's uh, now the Taliban has got control of our uh, military uh, uh, arsenal, and it's. Uh, not doing a whole lot for uh, our uh, heroes that are still there, if there's any at all, because I've got at least uh, one uh, cousin on uh, my dad's side of the family that uh, possibly uh, served in Afghanistan so much. So I wonder if uh, he's still uh, stuck there. It's a, it's a really interesting and important point, Brad, and it's something that, I've heard a lot of people be very critical of President Biden for not just Republicans. There were some Democrats who didn't love the way that happened either. Uh, EJ and Wendy, I want to I want to give you a chance to to respond to that. How is Biden doing internationally, and how does Afghanistan and that that pretty clumsy withdrawal figure into that? EJ, I'll start with you this time. Yeah, I mean the withdrawal clearly was clumsy because the government collapsed more quickly than uh, Biden or our intelligence apparently uh, suspected it would. And had the government held for longer, we wouldn't have had those ugly scenes, or at least not the same ugly scenes, if, uh, of uh, trying to get people out, even though they ended up getting a lot of people out. Um, I think we could argue about Afghanistan all day. I think it did begin Biden's drop in the polls. There's no question about that. Uh, I just think he was left in an impossible position when President Trump made his deal uh, with the Taliban, which I think set off a cycle of deals with the Taliban on the ground in Afghanistan. Um, and the question is, could we have kept troops there? I think Biden was right to say we couldn't just stay at the same level. We would either have to escalate again 
or withdraw. So on the policy, I much as I hate to see what has happened inside Afghanistan, um, I think on the policy, he was broadly right. The execution wasn't so good. Um, and on the one hand, I think the country has largely moved beyond that issue. On the other hand, what's sitting there is not satisfactory. But I think Biden on foreign policy is going to be judged by the next year, and in particular, this crisis uh, in Ukraine. These negotiations going on with Russia mm -hmm. right now are hugely, hugely important. And I think in the long run, that will have much more to do with Biden standing on foreign policy than the Afghanistan uh, mess, however clumsy that withdrawal was. Hmm. Uh, Wendy, I wonder what you make of the international side of the, the, the Biden administration. Well, I think EJ's point about sort of what would have happened next in Afghanistan is so important here. You know, the requirement to either send more troops or, you know, uh, really raise our stakes there or get out. Um, and I think it reflects a general lack of appetite among the American people for foreign conflict. Uh, I think increasingly, Trump certainly made this point over and over again during his presidency that we have a lot of problems at home uh, and that we have to focus on what's going on at home and that, you know, for a family to lose a service person, and we are so grateful for all of the service people who served in uh, all of our conflicts, particularly Afghanistan and Iraq, and to lose uh, your loved one uh, and then have that, uh, you know, uh, exit from Afghanistan you sort of say, wait, I suffered this personal loss and, and people gave their lives and we don't seem to be in a better place in Afghanistan for it. And every time that happens in the American public's life, uh, there's less and less appetite to do it again, which I think hampers him going into negotiations uh, with Russia and any other foreign power. Uh, we can certainly go with drones and we can certainly um, go with other ways that are supposed to minimize loss of life, both um, from, our, from our side at least. Uh, but, you know, in the end of the day, you need public support to do these things. And if the foreign community understands the American appetite is very low to get involved, that's going to weaken Biden on the international stage. And so there are a lot of um, spillover effects from the withdrawal of Afghanistan. But I would certainly hope that our caller and anybody else who had family members um, fighting for this country understand that the country is grateful for that, of course. Um, and just because people don't want to go do it again doesn't reduce or minimize um, what these people gave to their country in serving. Yeah. Okay, Wendy Schiller and E.J. Dion, it was really great to have both of you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Great to be with you and with Wendy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, ditto. Thanks very much. Okay, we're going to take another break. When we come back, we're going to change the subject a little. We're going to talk about the biggest recent news from outer space. Wayne State University astrophysicist Edward Cackett is going to join us to talk about the newly launched James Webb Space Telescope. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. You know, if you're anything like me, you have been scouring the internet now for news every day about what's happening with the James Webb Space Telescope, which was launched at the end of last year after 30 years of development at NASA. This is a telescope that is far more advanced than the Hubble Space Telescope and will allow us to see the universe in much clearer terms, but also understand the cosmos in a different way. I want to welcome Ed Cackett, who is a Wayne State University astrophysicist to the show, to talk to us about all the great leaps forward that the James Webb Space Telescope represents. Uh, Ed, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hi, great to be with you, Stephen. Yeah. So let's start with this. Uh, talk about what this space telescope is and why it's such a big leap forward for our understanding of the universe. Yeah, so two of the big things that James Webb is going to be able to do uh, is 
because it's a bigger telescope than we've previously sent up into space. So the Hubble Space Telescope, which has been up there and doing great science for the last 30 years, is 2.4 meters across. Uh, James Webb Space Telescope is six and a half meters across, uh, and that was enabled by the fact that uh, NASA developed these technologies to be able to fold the telescope and fit it inside the rocket so you can get a bigger telescope into space. And secondly, instead of looking in optical light, so the visible light that we see with our eyes, the James Webb Space Telescope is sensitive to infrared light, uh, and that's going to allow it to peer even further back into the earlier uh, time in the universe. And this idea of looking across time, I think, is really important. And it's the thing that I don't know that everybody who even pays attention to things like this quite understands, that the nature of light uh, is that, um, you know, it travels. It travels at a certain speed. And so when we see something here uh, at our point in space and time uh, from uh, a great distance, we're also looking back uh, into our past and to the universe's past, and that that's the way to learn more about the way that things work now in in uh, in our solar system and and in in uh, the rest of 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 space. That that idea of looking back, I think, is the thing of promise, really, with this with this telescope. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, you're exactly right. Light travels at a fixed speed. And so uh, the further away we look, the longer it's taken that light to get to us. So the most distant galaxies that we look at, the light that was emitted from them uh, was emitted many, many, many years in the past. So with the James Webb Space Telescope, we're going to be able to look back about 13 and a half billion years right back to the very, very early part of the universe. So the universe is about 13.7 billion years old. So they're going to be looking at just a few hundred million years after the universe was formed, after the Big Bang. And James Webb Space Telescope will be sensitive to looking at the very first stars or the, the signature of the very first stars and looking at the very first galaxies that were formed. So uh, the other thing that I've heard that they want to do with the James Webb Telescope is also uh, take a closer look at our own solar system, that because uh, this is a telescope that is sensitive to infrared, it will be able to tell us things that we haven't been able to quite understand about our planetary neighbors. So talk about what, what James Webb will, will enable in that realm. Yes, it has a very, very sensitive uh, infrared spectrograph on there, which allows you to look at the properties of atmospheres and gases around planets. So we can look at moons and planets in our own solar system. But I think even more excitingly, from my point of view, is looking at the signatures of the atmospheres of planets around other stars. So we'll actually be able to try and see uh, the signatures, for instance, of water vapor, uh, around uh, planets, around other stars, and, you know, potentially see the signatures of life on other planets uh, elsewhere in the universe. So that would be something that's really exciting that James Webb's going to look at, the atmospheres of other planets, mm. uh, and looking for the signatures of life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I also, because I'm just uh, really interested in, in this kind of science, uh, there are there are these these details about where the space telescope will be located and why that are important, not just in terms of uh, what it will be able to see from that point, but why it will be able to be where it is. Uh, talk about this uh, this L two point that uh, that it's trying to reach. Yeah, so it's. It's on its way at the moment. It's take 30 days to get there. It's, as you said, a special place called L2. It's about a million miles from the Earth. And it's actually a special gravitational point where the sun's and the Earth's gravity works in a way so that a object, a spacecraft, can be there um, in a stable orbit. 
Uh, and that spacecraft, James Webb Space Telescope, is actually going to be orbiting the sun rather than orbiting the Earth. But, but at this L2 point, it will take exactly the same time to do one orbit of the Earth as the uh, one orbit of the sun as the Earth does. So it will take one year to go around. And so it's going to be in a synchronous orbit with the Earth. So we'll always be able to see it. We'll always be able to communicate with it. And it's going to be far enough away from the Earth that um, it's going to be in this brilliant, dark, cold uh, place to be able to do infrared astronomy uh, and look at these other worlds and the early universe. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a really, as I said, it's a really big leap forward uh, for planetary exploration. And uh, it's uh, a great achievement for for NASA. Uh, Ed Kack at uh, Astrophysicist here at Wayne State University. Great to have you here with us to talk about the James Webb Space Telescope. Great to be here as always. Thanks. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. I'll be here, and I hope you will too. We're going to talk about the Omicron surge here in Michigan and what you need to know. More and more people, of course, are coming down with uh, in COVID-19 infections. Of course, it looks really different than it did a year and a half ago. We'll talk about all of the things we need to know about staying safe and reducing the spread of the disease. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>